Farmers are the heartbeat of rural America. Congress recently invested $20 billion in America's farmers and ranchers, focusing on conservation practices and profits for future generations. Today, these funds are at risk. You're squawking over $20 billion. That USDA program, it's investment into the future for everybody. If the funding was eliminated, it could hurt farms and families. Tell Congress, protect this generational investment in the Farm Bill. Learn more at investinourland.org. Paid for by Invest in Our Land. Hello, listeners. It is Thursday, December 21st, 2017. I'm Scott Bland, your host, and you are listening to Politico's Nerdcast. We are going to wrap up the great tax reform saga of 2017 in our first segment this week. Nancy Cook's going to walk us through what was in and what was out of the final bill that passed this week. We're going to talk about some of the early effects and what people can expect to see through uh, 2018. And then also uh, just recapping some of the, the political fighting that's going on about this. It's obviously going to be a huge Uh, deal in the 2018 midterm elections that are uh, less than a year away at this point. And uh, speaking of those midterm elections, we're going to talk a little bit about the future of Speaker Paul Ryan. Uh, There's a big story in Politico just this past week about how uh, Paul Ryan may not have a future in Congress, that this may be uh, his final year of a 20-year career. We're going to talk a little bit about what that would mean, what's going into this and what uh, what the aftermath of such a decision would look like in the House of Representatives. A few housekeeping notes before we jump into all of that. Remember, you can email us your questions if you have them at nerdcast at politico.com. And don't forget to subscribe, rate us, and write written reviews of the Nerdcast on Apple Podcasts or your preferred podcast platform. One other housekeeping note, I'm going to be taking a few months off at the beginning of 2018 to go on paternity leave, but don't worry, the Nerdcast is going to be right here in your podcast feed every week. Uh, My colleagues Charlie Matessian and Tim Alberta are going to be uh, taking the reins on most weeks, and uh, I will be uh, back with you before you know it, I'm sure. We are here in studio today with uh, two of our White House reporters, as usual, Eliana Johnson. Hello, Eliana. Hello, Scott. And so Nan- formal today, <laughs> and as always. Nancy Cook, who has been braving the cold on the White House lawn for MSNBC for the last hour. Welcome to our warm studio. Thank you. It, it was a little cold out there. You know, they, they, the networks do love those outside stages, whether the White House lawn or like on top of the Chamber of Commerce building across the street or whatever. They love that stuff for reasons that I don't entirely understand. But Yeah, I think people think the White House has like a certain level of glamour. And it definitely does. It's a beautiful building. On the, on the outside. Yeah, on the outside. <laughs> but like the press the press area is pretty dumpy. And there, there were kept being like, you know, delivery trucks sort of going in and out of the shot. So up close, it can be a, a little bit more nuanced as, a, as to its beauty. Nerdcast, taking you inside, behind the news. <laughs> All right. Our first segment this week, we're going to talk uh, once again, maybe, I guess, for the last time in 2017, tax reform. It is done. It's passed Congress. President hasn't signed it yet. He's obviously going to sign it sometime uh, in in the next uh, few days. Our data point is 227. That is the number of votes congressional Republicans mustered in the House uh, to pass that bill earlier this week. Ele- just 12 Republican no's. Uh, it passed pretty easily. Uh, good margin of error there. Uh, one from Walter Jones, who's kind of this iconoclastic 
um, libertarian conservative from North Carolina, and then the remaining 11 of the 12 Republican no's coming from those high-tax states we've been talking about, they're going to get hit by the um, curtailment of the state and local tax deduction. So California, New Jersey, and New York supplying most of the no's here. So uh, battleground district Republicans from all the other states around the country going all in uh, with this, um, you know, it, it unified the, the party in a way that maybe looked unlikely even a few months ago. Um, Nancy, what's next? Uh, this does not affect personal income taxes due next April 15th. So it, it kicks in on you know, the, the, the 2018 tax year. Uh, but what are people going to start seeing uh, in terms of changes uh, in January, February going forward? Well, so uh, the White House has said vis-a-vis uh, -vis the IRS that people will start to see sort of changes in their paychecks starting in February. And that's been a big selling point for them. I think that, uh, you know, politically, this gave the White House a huge win and a huge boost uh, heading into the next year. It was the first major legislative win. And also embedded in the bill were some key things that conservatives wanted, like a repeal of the individual mandate of Obamacare and a provision that would open up oil drilling in Alaska. Alaska, which was like this other conservative pipe dream. And so, you know, pipeline dream. Pipeline dream, of Sorry. course. Thank you. <laughs> and then, so it basically enables the White House and the president to end this year on a high note. You know, they're, they're laying the foundation to make a real economic argument in 2018 that, you know, Trump has been responsible for tax reform. Uh, you know, the stock market is booming. He's done this oil drilling thing. They've dealt with Obamacare. So, so they're really wrapping this up and make, going to make this a key argument heading into the next year. I think, more under the radar, what we're going to see is that I think that the tax bill, because it was so rushed, has the potential to cause problems. And that's not something that the White House will message or talk about. But, you know, the IRS is a very underfunded agency. They're going to have to react to this very quickly and write a bunch of new rules and regulations to deal with this major overhaul of the tax system. And then we also have the Hill, which is going to have to do a technical corrections bill, again, to sort of clean up this hastily written bill. A lot of policy bills have this, but, but this one is expected to be quite large. And so I think that there will actually be some confusion on the part of government agencies, the part of tax preparers, and even for some taxpayers as to what the new rules are, what the details are how much they're actually going to pay, and what that's going to look like. And I don't think that that will necessarily be part of the White House's rah-rah message, but there is the potential there for uh, some hiccups at the beginning of the new year. Hmm, that's interesting. Eliana, something else that uh, we saw yesterday was in, in the wake of final passage of the bill, we saw corporations like Boeing, AT&T, Wells Fargo, I think some others, making these announcements about uh, because – uh, specifically linking the passage of this bill to bonuses that they were going to be handing out to staff, to some changes in their minimum wage structure, to philanthropic um, investments that they were going to be making. Uh, and and we saw the, the White House and Senate Republicans and others kind of jumping on this as, look, like this is an immediate effect of, uh, you know, yes, this bill cut corporate taxes way, you know, way more than any anything else. But uh, but look, you know, people are going to see benefits from this. Yeah, I don't know enough about that response, but just based on the facts of it, one of the questions raised by the bill is, OK, the 
the biggest effect of this bill is the is the decrease in the corporate tax rate from 35 to 21 percent. But are workers actually going to feel a benefit from that? Right. It seems to me that those actions were intended as a signal to the White House um, and as um, furnishing a kind of evidence that the White House can uh, use when they talk about this bill that, yes, we're already seeing companies um, take concrete actions that are putting money back in people's pockets. Now, who knows if this will extend more widely than a kind of symbolic act upon the bill's passage. But it seems to me that that's what that um, at least symbolically was intended to do. Right. I, I th- that's that's the key question, right? I mean, I think the the most important part of those announcements to me were uh, the the fact that most of the the money going to people because it was in bonuses, right? It wasn't in salary changes. The other thing it did, it just kind of it brought back memories of you know a little over a year ago of the the. Uh, the carrier deal that President-elect Donald Trump and Vice President-elect Pence, who was then the governor of Indiana, announced that, that you know they had intervened and negotiated to bring this big uh, 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 deal with carrier to keep jobs in uh, a pl- at a plant in Indiana, uh, send some tax benefits their way. Um, and it, it was a very interesting political moment for uh, a lot of kind of Republicans who saw this as a big policy problem that they they don't like the idea of a president interfering with you know private corporations business and then from a democratic perspective they were thinking oh my god like this is going to keep happening over and over and there are going to be all these stories about trump saving jobs and we're this is the end of our party fast forward a year we've seen a couple things first of all there hasn't been that much more of it secondly the the carrier deal as it was presented last december was kind of a mirage Actually, uh, a bunch of those jobs have, in fact, still gotten shipped to Mexico. The uh, union uh, involved in the negotiations there has kind of blistered Trump repeatedly uh, on this issue. And, and you know, we haven't seen anything else like that. And so I do wonder if we're going to, you know, I, I just wonder how this is going to play out on the corporate end of this. Is like, do we keep seeing uh, more movement, or is it really these kind of symbolic announcements that in a year's time will have even forgotten ever happened? Well, what we're seeing is we're seeing one-off examples, and that's great PR for the White House. But the larger question, which Eliana brought up, is the White House has staked so much on this bill with the idea that a hu- huge corporate profits will eventually trickle down to workers, and that's just an economic bet that they've made. We don't know if that will actually come to fruition. Uh, my colleague Ben White, uh, who covers economics for us, wrote this great piece last night about how it's you know basically Trump's economy now. You know, this tax bill is the first major legislation that he's put through. The White House is betting it will have a huge effect on the economy. And after this goes through, it is going to be Trump that owns the economy. Nancy, w- one thing kind of from especially from a political perspective, I thought this was very interesting. A lot of the big bogey items that made news as the House was working on the first version of this bill, I think particularly the the graduate student, uh, uh, the tax on graduate student tuition waivers, um, some stuff, uh, some specific provisions about, um, you know, a few other uh, deductions that are out there. They weren't actually in the the final version of this bill, right? I, how how did that all play out? I, and you know, I'm thinking especially as because we spent so many months hearing and reading about them, and for them not to have been in this, it seems like Republicans are, have paid the political price for putting stuff like that in there. That that's baked into what people think when they're asked in polls about quote the Republican tax bill. How how did 
can you tell us a little bit like you know behind the scenes in the process of this how how stuff like that happened and how how the bill changed and evolved as as we moved from the summer into fall into now winter it just getting passed sure so i think early on uh the white house and more congressional leaders, uh, I would say congressional leaders were much more involved in writing the details of the bill than than the White House was, although they do had did have a few key staffers who were helping out. You know, there was this sense that they knew Trump really wanted to slash the corporate tax rate. They knew they wanted to give huge tax cuts to individuals, but they needed ways to pay for it. And so that's why they were proposing all of these different things that got a lot of bad press about, you know, no longer letting people deduct their medical expenses or no longer letting people deduct uh, the loan, the student interest loans um, or the interest on student loans, excuse me. And so that that got a lot of press. I think there was so much back and forth on this and each one of those provisions sort of ended up being protected or many of them did. And the tax bill that we have instead uh, does two t- two key things. One, It takes aim at a bunch of provisions that really help out blue state voters primarily, and that's such as uh, the decrease in the mortgage interest deduction and then also the decrease in the state and local taxes. Those are things that are really going to hit what the Republicans have decided are blue state voters, people that weren't going to support them anyway. Disproportionate effect. Disproportionately. And so that's an interesting sort of retribution towards uh, non-Republican voters or seemingly non-Republican voters. And then the other way that they ended up paying for it rather than sort of getting knocked around for all of these on getting rid of uh, these popular deductions was to make all of the individual provisions temporary. And so I think that we'll see the Democrats really hammer them on this, that basically they've made all the corporate provisions permanent, which will have major sweeping changes for companies. And we're not sure if those gains will trickle down to workers. We just don't know that yet. Meanwhile, like everyone's tax cuts, you know, uh, the expansion of the child tax credit, all these things that the White House is touting that will help middle class families, those will all go away after 2025. Uh, and, you know, the White House is banking on the idea that whoever is in power at that point will extend them much the way Obama extended the Bush era tax cuts. But that uh, that's a gamble. Yeah, I mean, and well, it's... It's a gamble that someone else has to deal with, though. Uh, I think much, much as much as Bush uh, uh, made that calculation uh, from from the uh, midterm perspective, it's going to be interesting how you know we noted that um, to your point about uh, what was left in uh, the 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 tax bill in terms of changes to deductions, kind of disproportionately hitting some blue states, and that's where almost all of the Republican no votes in the House came from. Uh, but we did see some some folks uh, from California, uh, Steve Knight in suburban Los Angeles, Ed Royce and Mimi Walters in Orange County uh, vote for this. We saw some upstate New York members who initially opposed the bill the first time around vote for it. Uh, the second time, Republicans like John Katko and Claudia Tenney, who are going to be in major battleground races in 2018. So it's going to be interesting to see how... Um, how that all plays out from uh, from a political perspective over the next eleven months. Um, from a policy perspective, what's what's next? 
the White House and, and Congress have really just been so singularly focused on on this. Well, I shouldn't say singularly. They've also been working on deals to keep the government open uh, and, and stuff like that. But this really has been the main legislative item for months and months now. It's been several months since kind of the, the last dying gasp of, of uh, Obamacare repeal uh, efforts were heard on the Hill. So, Eliana, what what are the White House and Congress looking to do next in 2018? You know, I wrote a piece about this maybe a month ago. About it was a very how, good piece. Yeah, um, go read it. Everyone go read this right now. Um, but about how there, it's kind of an unprecedented situation in Washington where there is no agreed upon next agenda item. If you talk to people on Capitol Hill, you talk to people in the White House, you'll hear all sorts of different things from a DACA fix to an infrastructure bill to, um, you know, some broader immigration plan to welfare reform or entitlement reform, which is something Paul Ryan really wants to do. But no real work has been done on any of these things, and there's really no agreement between the White House and Congress. And I think it does speak to the fact that the White House really isn't driving the legislative train on this, and yet um, people on Capitol Hill are hesitant to really get to work on something because the White House can derail any of their efforts you know, in five seconds. So there is a sort of awkward situation. It was funny to me yesterday in the signing ceremony, um, Trump said, oh, Paul Ryan and Mitch McConnell and I, we were just a little team. Um, we worked on this. It was so much fun. Winning is fun. But, you know, c- clearly that's not how these guys work together. They spent most of 2017 at each other's throats and had a rare moment of, you know, comedy. Um on the tax bill. So we'll see. I mean, it, w- it will be, you know, really good for Republicans if they're able to pull something else off and agree, A, agree on a next agenda item, but B, push it, actually push it through Congress in 2018. Right now, we have no idea what that'll be. And I think the tricky thing is, is that uh, basically, they're trying to figure out how to fund the government, and they're going to punt that till January. And so what's going to happen is everyone's going to come back from holiday break. Trump will come back from Mar-a-Lago. There's not internal agreement in the White House as to what to do next. And then also Congress is going to be consumed the first few weeks of January by passing this funding fix, including passing uh, the Children's Health Insurance Program Uh that is going to expire, I think, in March now. I think they've agreed to extend it a little bit. But that affects 9 million kids um, and typically has been a bipartisan program and also just generally the need to fund the government. And so I feel like we could see a potential moment for the tax legislation to be really overshadowed in 2018 by fights inside the Republican Party on the Hill over uh, passing a spending bill, coupled with the White House sort of scrambling and having these different factions pushing different priorities, be it infrastructure, welfare reform, potentially revisiting health care. Yeah, welfare reform. I mean, that's that's an interesting or we've seen kind of some some hints and and whispers that that might be something that Speaker Paul Ryan is interested in in tackling in in an election year, which yeah, is an and interesting that's, prospect. That's pretty controversial inside the White House. You know, I talked to a White House official yesterday for another story, and I sort of asked, like, oh, what are you all thinking? And and the official said, you know, look, we just passed tax reform. We have this great win. I don't feel like we should step on – we should do welfare reform and step on our political successes. 
Um, and so I think that that really divides the White House as well. And one of the key pushers of welfare reform was this guy who was number two on the Domestic Policy Council, Paul Winfrey, who has just left the White He's House out. to go back to Heritage, where he came from. And so I think that you won't have as strong of an internal voice in the White House on that uh, moving forward. Mm, that's interesting. They also had to do a DACA fix. And the six-month deadline for congressional action on the Iran deal is coming up. So that's something else the White House is going to have to decide whether they're going to take action. And I know the White House has been telling Congress and uh, the America's European allies that, look, if Congress doesn't pass measures to crack down on Iran, Trump could just pull out of this deal. So that's something that, um, you know, is, is a real possibility. And uh, could suck up a lot of oxygen. All right. Well, we that I think that's that's a good list of three, four, five things that we should be keeping an eye on in January, February, March once uh, everyone gets back after the holidays, as well as we've been talking about with just uh, how the implementation and the selling of this tax plan goes. And just the the one thing you know I forgot to mention before when we were talking about the carrier deal um, stuff like, but the one thing that I was thinking about with this last night as as um, you know, the House and Senate Republicans in the White House have kind of blamed the media for sandbagging the bill, which is unpopular in polling. And they say that's the reason why. But just what a big help it would be for the Republican Party right now if they had a president with a, who had not spent his credibility arguing about crowd size and a million other clear, clearly false things over the course of, of 2017 as they go out and try and turn the tables on 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 this tax bill, which is starting out in an unpopular position with voters. But one thing I'm curious about is we saw the Koch brothers back group Americans for Prosperity uh, yesterday or last night announced that they're going to spend some money. Uh, I don't have the figures in front of me, but they're going to spend some money on messaging tax reform and how great this is for the American people. And so it will be interesting to see if there's a coalition that springs up of business groups, uh, you know, outside conservative groups, you know, pro-tax cut groups like Americans for Tax Reform, if they put some dollars behind helping the Republicans message that in early 2018. That's a good point. Well, we we just uh, mentioned welfare reform and Paul Ryan. Let's stick with the Speaker of the House for our uh, next segment this week. Our data point is 20, and this uh, we're coming up on Paul Ryan's 20th year in Congress. And according to our colleagues Tim Alberta and Rachel Bade, it will be his last. So this was a bombshell story that Tim and Rachel published uh, last week, which, uh, I mean, you could you could practically hear uh, people in Washington, like, rushing to Politico website to read this and see what was going on because they report that he is starting to tell a select number of uh, close allies that he's he's preparing to, to hang, hang it up uh, after after 2018. This is, is going to be it. Now... He's certainly not saying so publicly, uh, but the you know for for people who have followed Ryan uh, closely in the past and the way he's talked about uh, public service, the way he's talked since his failed vice presidential run in 2012, the idea of him walking away is n- doesn't is not quite the surprise that it would seem to someone looking at a relatively young House Speaker. Uh, at a glance from outside Washington, Eliana, you know he he's he's talked a little bit about this before, but there there's there there are parts of this that once you get over the shock of the idea of the Speaker of the House walking away from from that position, it actually there there are 
it kind of falls into place in in some ways. I, my view on this is that Ryan – I've said this before, but I think Ryan will retire if Republicans lose the House. I think he has no interest in being minority leader. And it also would be less of a blow to the Republican conference if he left when Republicans weren't in control. He kind of took the job. Uh, he didn't want it. He took the job because there was really no other leader Republicans could agree upon. I think it would be much less of a blow if he took it when they – if he left when they were in the minority. That being said, I think Republicans are pretty likely to lose the House, mm. um, which means that I think he's pretty likely to go. See, that's interesting. That that was the, – the, the story that Tim and Rachel wrote played a lot more on kind of Ryan's – personal feelings of, first of all, passing tax reform, which has been a, he's been in Congress for 20 years. It's been a 20-year goal of his. And then also this this kind of sense that deeply embedded in his personal story, uh, his father died when he was a teenager. Uh, his grandfather died uh, when his father, I think, was was quite young. There's there's the sense that, that he, do, he does not want to be uh, around in, he does not want to be in Congress for the rest of his life, however long uh, that is, and that also he he has obviously been in an uncomfortable place in a changing Republican Party under first nominee and now President Donald Trump over the last year and a half or so, and that all that. But what the certainly at least as far as he's telling people, the prospect of Democrats r- wrestling his House majority away from him is not. Uh, playing into that decision. But obviously, as you point out, Eliana, it looms over everything right now. Actually, and one thing I would add to that, it's not even necessarily him losing the majority. Imagine if Republicans kept the majority by one seat or two seats and handed the Walter Joneses and the Mark Meadows and the Justin Amashes and the uh, Thomas Masseys of the world an essential veto over the speakership because the, the speakership, you have to get a majority of the House. You can't, uh, you right. know, it's not one of those internal caucus elections. And that's, and that's also, not a situation right, that I'm sure right. he would enjoy very much at all. Uh, I just think he's less likely to go in that situation. I don't see how it's all that much different from the the conditions in which he took the speakership when he didn't want it. and Because there's still nobody else who... I think Republicans could really agree upon a speaker. Um, I'm So I'm a little skeptical that if Republicans keep the House, he goes. Um, but yes, I think it will have enormous implications for Republicans who even Paul Ryan has struggling, struggled to govern. Yeah. I, I, I have this pet theory that if the, if the House ends up in a single-digit majority in 2019, uh, with Democrats having nine or fewer seats uh, as an edge or Republicans having nine or fewer, that neither Nancy Pelosi nor Paul Ryan can be speaker uh, because there are just enough uh, rebels who saw what happened to Boehner in 2015 and saw how it elevated, ultimately, the people who stood against him and will want to take advantage of that moment that, like, kind of the seal has been broken on <laughs> using this really extreme measure to to throw the house into chaos for as as a means of of you know personal political elevation for backbench members of congress and that 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 is now an open more a more open possibility for for uh, rebels certainly we've seen it happen on the republican side i'm convinced that it could happen on the democratic yeah, side if they got a small I majority i know that there are members of the freedom freedom caucus i've spoken to some of them who have said we know we're not going to get a more conservative speaker than paul ryan and so some members of the freedom caucus are supportive of speaker ryan they are certainly not opposed to him as a block i also just think that he 
has always viewed himself as much more of a policy wonk uh, than, you know, a political leader of the House. You know, I don't think he's like a Kevin McCarthy who likes whipping the votes and backslapping people and making sure that everyone feels heard. I think that accomplishing tax reform for him was a huge thing. He's always wanted to reshape entitlements. He's always wanted to change Medicaid in some way, uh, you know, make Medicare cuts. He's I think that is viewed as the next thing. And I think that that would be part of welfare reform. So I feel like if there's not, you know, I don't have any inside knowledge of conversations that he's having with people about coming or going. But I do feel like if the possibility to do those other policy things aren't there, that will make the job much less attractive to him because it is such a grind of a job in terms of fundraising, keeping the caucus in line, and it doesn't have those wonky elements that he likes. And also, he's so young. I mean, he could go on and have a whole second half of his career doing something entirely different. No, that's that's a really good point. And one of the things that, that uh, Tim and Rachel reported was that how Ryan has kind of chafed at some of the um, – uh, besides the policy and political aspects of the job, he's chafed at some of the like disciplinary and uh, aspects of it, in particular uh, demanding the resignation of uh, former Arizona Congressman Trent Franks uh, a couple weeks ago when he was implicated in a major uh, sex sex scandal, sexual harassment scandal um, in, in the House and uh, things like Who that. Who would like that job? Well, I think – well, I, I people – People like you know it's it's a constitutional office, right? You're third in line for the presidency, or well, second in line, I guess. The, I mean that aspect. Of oh, the that job, aspect you know? of it. Yeah, yeah, no, that's that's a good point. Well, I should also uh, now now that I think about, it, I should walk back something I said a minute ago about the. I think if Democrats won the House by nine seats, that Nancy Pelosi would probably be able to get elected Speaker. But there is some amount. I don't know if it's one, two, three, four. I don't Tim know where Ryan it starts. Breathing down her neck. You got Tim Ryan. You got Seth Moulton, who um is not only been calling publicly for her ouster, but is helping fundraise for a ton of other people who are running for house. And he could be bringing a little army uh, of, of fellow veterans to, well, pardon, pardon the pun, uh, to, to Capitol Hill on 2019. Anyway, back to Ryan. Um, he, there, there are clearly bits of this that he hasn't, um, uh, that this job that he has, he has chafed against. And, uh, even though he's performed some of the uh, the political aspects of it a lot better than than people thought at first in terms of the fundraising, kind of bringing in massive amounts of money for the National Republican Congressional Committee and um, other uh, candidates who are who are in trouble. Um, one who one final bit on this. So, who Eliana, you've said that because of the um, the the sense that there is no one else that if they keep the majority, you think he would stay. If he does go, who's next up? Well, I think I, I trust Tim's uh, Tim and Rachel's reporting on this, which is that Kevin McCarthy would be next up, though he fumbled last time around and that Steve Scalise is making plans to launch a bid should McCarthy fumble again. That is, if the conference suggests that it won't have him as a leader. So I have, I have no reason not to trust their reporting on that. One thing that occurred, one interesting twist about that that occurred to me is that you'd almost think because, you know, McCarthy had trouble and ultimately pulled out of his last bid for speaker after Boehner left, which resulted in Ryan's elevation. But if Republicans were in the minority, McCarthy would have a much easier, he'd he'd have a much easier time becoming minority leader than becoming speaker because you don't need to win 218 votes to become minority leader. You just need to win the majority of an internal caucus vote. So whereas maybe Steve Scalise would have a better 
better odds of pulling together I the totally full agree with that. might of the caucus. All right. Well, that's a much longer term story to, to look forward to. But there's one. I mean, I the the story that Tim and Rachel wrote is pretty compelling. Um, and like you said, I certainly have no reason to, to doubt it. And they, they were on Even though Paul this trail Ryan for months. thinks it's irresponsible. Mm, yes. Uh, well, here, well, here's something I think is irresponsible from Paul Ryan, who's going around publicly saying, it's like, oh, I haven't considered whether I'm running for re-election yet. Well, he's raising millions and millions of dollars from donors <laughs> exactly. for the purpose of running for re-election. So I think I think Paul Ryan can uh, take that particular criticism and stick it. Um, stick it where? Uh, where the sun doesn't <laughs> shine. It could be under under a desk. Um, all right, guys. Thank you so much for uh, making the time today. Uh, we're uh, going to be back with you uh, for a holiday episode uh, next week. But this is our last time in the studio, in the friendly confines of the studio uh, this year. So thank you both for making the time. Thanks, Scott. Thanks, Scott. Have a happy new year. And as always, a big thank you to you, our listeners. Remember, you can email us questions if you have them at nerdcast at politico.com. And don't forget to subscribe, rate us, and write written reviews of the Nerdcast on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. So once again, thank you to our panel. Thank you to our executive producer, Bridget Mulcahy, our producer, Michaela Rodriguez, our illustrator, Bill Cookman, and our researcher, Zach Montalaro. That's it for us. We will talk to you again next week.